0: Let's dive into improving our state of being. This week on the Minding Wellness Podcast, I am thrilled to bring you Vonda Vaden-Bates. Vonda is an alliance builder and leadership coach. For over 30 years, she has guided professionals to succeed on behalf of their organizations and careers. She helps people mindfully move from potential to action, set and reach goals, manage engaged teams, and communicate with influence. Her creative approach has influenced major market shifts in television, retail, banking, technology, and education. In 2013, Vonda decided to contribute her skills on behalf of safety and healthcare. After researching how her husband, Yogiraj Charles Bates, died from a preventable, hospital associated venous thromboembolism advocating for every person giving and receiving care vonda brings a compassionate voice strategic skills and collaboration expertise to improve communication and safety in healthcare education and governance vonda practices meditation and mindful motion to ensure her own wellness supports the health of all living beings Vonda and I had a great conversation this week about her husband, what happened to him in regards to the preventable venous thromboembolism, how she navigated that situation then, what her advice is for others now, and how she has made this part of her passion and work moving forward. Before we get started with our conversation, I also just want to remind you all about an opportunity to continue Making sure that you are minding your physical wellness. The way that I do that is with oxofitness.com. That's A U X O fitness.com. With bar classes, that's B A R R E, and yoga type classes, as well as a few meditations, one of which I am happy and proud to be a part of. You really have all you need in one online robust option to work out and get your body and mind in gear for hopefully an amazing 2021. You can go to OXO, that's A-U-X-O, fitness.com for more information. Now on to my conversation with Vonda. All right. I am so excited to bring on Vonda Vaden Bates to the podcast today. I recently saw her speak, I believe, at a patient safety event. Uh, I was just telling her that I've been through so many virtual events lately that I couldn't even pinpoint where I saw her video, but I also believe that our paths crossed for a reason. So I reached out to her and she was so willing and gracious to come on and share her story and her insights and her journey. So thank you
1: so much for coming on, Vonda. Thank you, Claudia. I'm very happy to be with you today.
0: And I am as well. Thank you so much. Let's go ahead and start as we do with each episode with the question of what does true wellness mean to you?
1: Hmm. Well, um, I think for me, wellness is about knowing oneself and knowing what one needs and being poised to succeed or um Amplify those those needs and those wants, those inner desires. My late husband used to say that uh, that desires were created in us so that we could see where our pathway was going, rather than trying to the need it was giving us basically a line of sight to the future and I thought that was a really beautiful way of putting and for me that lines up with wellness if I know myself well and I know uh, what my inklings are what what really lights me up and I'm in an environment without hesitations or oppressions to fulfill those then my path to wellness is completely within my reach. I love that. And I love
0: your husband's insights. And we're definitely going to dive a little bit more into some of his spiritual practices in a little bit. But I uh, absolutely agree and have uh, sort of learned and appreciated that through my own journey. So thank you for sharing that. Let's dive a little bit into your backstory that has led you into the work you're currently doing. And then later on in the show, we'll we'll dive more into what that work looks like and, and what you're looking forward
1: to in the future. Sure. Well, in in 2012, my husband did uh, die in a Minnesota hospital from preventable hospital-associated events. He went in for a traumatic brain injury, and that issue was resolved quite well by a neurosurgery team. However, over 13 days of hospitalization, a blood clot formed in his legs. This is a very common complication that can happen after long surgeries, and in addition to other circumstances. In that hospital at that time, though, there was no risk assessment and there was really no line of of education, either for us, the family um, and him, the patient, or the clinicians that were very cautiously, thoughtfully and kindly caring for him. Um, That led me to really bring something that I believe is something he paid attention to and that we paid attention to in our work, that. Uh, lack of transparency was really crippling healthcare in continuing to have continuous learning, if you will, and that made it impossible for that system to educate us appropriately on something that was very common, uh, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, which results in a venous thromboembolism, is the third leading cause of hospital deaths, hospital associated deaths. And so it it opened my eyes to uh, a line of sight into healthcare that I'd never seen before. Mm, I
0: think, you know, it's so important to share the story because I I would like to kind of dive into, did you or your husband have any medical background? So going into this, did you feel pretty um, sort of at the will or at the the feet of the knowledge of the medical team, or did you go
1: in with some knowledge of the system? We both went in with virtually no knowledge of the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a lot of knowledge about relationship and communication, which is a very strong part of that system. But in terms of healthcare, care, medical care for both of us, uh, we hardly ever engage with healthcare. care very, very minimally.
0: Okay, so yeah, given that information, you know, it can, I know it can be, it can be very scary for those of us who are going in with some knowledge and who have some experience working in the medical system, but certainly it is a scary thing going in without that knowledge and sort of just trusting a system to work for you that we now know is very broken and often doesn't. What, what, looking back at the scenario that happened, what were some of the red flags that maybe were ignored or you didn't know to bring up? What, what do you look back on and think, how were those missed?
1: Mm. Um, I sort of would call. I'll put those in two categories, and I'm going to make a presumption, and so I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. But there's the medical category that is, you know, now that in hindsight and a lot of research, I've become uh, quite uh, quite adept at speaking about the medical situation that was going on and the missteps that were there. But I'm presuming that you might <clears throat> prefer to hear a little bit more about maybe some of the communication and relational. Uh, components that were there. Am I, am I accurate on that?
0: Yes, absolutely. Whatever comes up for you is perfect. I know that you're, you have been very active in this movement. So I know that your insights now, of course, hindsight always can be 2020. And so I know that some of your insights now looking back will be super valuable. So yes, whatever comes to mind is perfect.
1: The first thing I would say is that we confused kindness as safety. Um, safety was not something that we were paying attention to. And in part, we weren't paying attention to it because we presumed, like I think a lot of people do when they go into healthcare, whether it's their clinic or long-term facilities or hospitals, we presume that that's one of the safest places that we could be at that time during a very critical medical issue. And we presumed that the kind care that we received, he was not the only person they were caring for. I never left his side. Oh, I did for about 45 minutes one day. Um, but I I was there. And when they brought him water, they brought me water. There was a, a keen interest in his well-being and our well-being. Um, so we, we kind of confused that as the the safe environment. And in hindsight, we realized and I realized that that was not what was happening there. Um, There's a lot of lack of coordination, there was a tremendous lack of communication across lines of thinking and uh, diagnosis and the, you know, the various elements that go into play when a professional team is attentive to the medical needs of a patient there i could go probably drill down a little bit into some of those but the second thing that i would say is that my husband there would be people who would come into our room and they would say oh we just can we just come sit here this is the calmest room in the hospital right now he was a very calm person we it, we have you know practices and it our lifestyle is just very much one of equanimity in many ways and they could see that And the reason I point to that is that in hindsight, what I realize is that they were in an environment and still are today, I'm caring for a friend right now who is um, in hospitals a lot and taking medical appointments for a very, very serious purpose. And I see, especially now during COVID, the clinicians, the staff, even the uh, people who support all of the operations that go into delivery of care, the administrators, the level of stress is immense. And in hindsight, what I can see clearly now that I could not see then is that if we don't give more care and well-being into the system, it is not really going to be able to functionally support Um, in with continuity, anyway, the care for patients and their loved ones.
0: Wow, there's these are some really important points. And honestly, I haven't heard it quite this way before. But confusing kindness as safety is such an important point. Um, I love that you point out that that there was kindness because oftentimes I think there is a sense that you know um, nobody is supported in the medical environment anymore, and so I, I love that you were even if it was with the small things, and even getting a glass of water when when your husband did. Um, but but that the assumption was the safest practice practices are in place and that this is a safe place to be. And I think that that would be a reasonable assumption to have, but also very important to point out that we do have to advocate for ourselves even in a situation that seems like it should be as safe as it possibly could be. And and I love that you also pointed out, and we're going to dive a little bit more into this, that that the staff noticed the energy in the room. And I know from doing a little bit of research on you and your husband, that your husband was an avid meditator. And I would love for you to expand upon that since you, since you brought that up and the energy that was felt by the staff. And I completely agree that the, the a level of stress is not sustainable with optimal functioning. And that's clear to see and we're, you know, what's happening in the medical system. And so I would love if you could share a little bit about your husband and the practices that he had and how, you know, that level of peace was sort of attained
1: in his life. I would love to speak to that. And I I will also say that, you know, though our experience was generally speaking, a lot of kind care, I know that it isn't always the case. I've also seen other versions of it. Um, You know, certainly we had a couple of instances then, but they certainly weren't the norm. And I would just say that I think there the way in which that shows up often is because of the stress points. Sometimes we just aren't at our best with others when we're under stress. My husband's practices with meditation were long-held. He started meditating and learning about the yoga philosophy. Uh, He practiced yoga in its broadest sense, which certainly included meditation, um, asana practices, postures, as well as many of the other methodologies and components of yoga. And he started that in the late '60s, early '70s, and so he had had many, 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 many years of a dedicated practice. He had also just completed about seven years of a sabbatical, where he went into a much more um, rigorous practice with his meditation. And specifically, what that meant for him was several hours a day of sitting perfectly still in solitude with nothing but he himself and him in that space and uh, having you know uh, taken on some of those practices myself and many maybe many of your listeners as well when when the stillness happens more can come forward in terms of acceptance of what is not just in that moment in time But in what follows from that space, and if you can imagine, you know, after uh, my husband was 69, so I'm not going to do the math really quickly in my head here, but more than 45 years of practicing being still, and just being present with what is made it possible for him to even go through brain surgery and continue to have that presence of mind while he was recovering from something so significant as a traumatic brain injury and a craniotomy.
0: Hmm. I, I just, I love the insights into that background and then how that translated into him approaching this traumatic brain injury and then this process of healing. And I, you know, I think that we could certainly encourage spiritual practice more. And it really kind of makes me think as the staff, you know, I'm, I'm envisioning the staff coming into this room and just feeling this positive, peaceful energy and thinking what a different place a hospital would be if we could encourage that type of energy throughout, or at least in pockets where there would be, you know, sort of this, this safe space of energy. And, um, you know, certainly that's something that Maybe we'll see in the future, but I love that your husband was able to bring that and who knows what the inspiration was beyond that, you know, there may have been so many ripple effects from that just um, feeling that and then, you know, the staff kind of maybe, maybe that inspired something in them. So I certainly love you sharing that and um, more about his practices. Were you a sort of meditator or a spiritual spiritually inclined person before you met him, or was your growth also very much just in line
1: and in parallel with with what you learned from him I'm, I'm giggling as you say that because uh, I met my husband because of organizational development, so he was also a master in osd organizational systems development, and specifically he zoned in with Gestalt theories and A friend of mine was helping him uh, with his business and introduced us and I remember about a year after us you know having tea every couple of months and just sort of looking at it through the business lens uh, we were we were starting to get a little close and comfy on a personal level and I remember saying to him I want everything you've got with regard to organizational development, systems theory, all that spiritual stuff. I've got my thing. Please don't mess with it. I'm not interested. And he just smiled gently and said, yeah, what? I'm not here to sell anything. You know, this is, this works for me. You find what works for you or you have what works for you. He really received that in a beautiful way. And I will say over time, being in his presence, certainly I couldn't miss that I was missing some things and so it was a very natural progression for me to begin to practice uh, meditation and to continue to do what I would I was doing which was dancing and um, a lot of you know being out in nature and just being communing with the trees I am a absolute um, a tree lover in the best sense and Uh, over time, I have continued those practices. They're very meaningful to me. And even, you know, about a year before he left, he started to, um, left his body he began to teach a practice called reflexive integration which came to him from meditation and I have taken that practice and really experimented and played with it and um, helped formalize it somewhat and brought it into and actually brought it over into the OD side so sort of systemized it in some ways that I I imagine um, you know we're still sort of in sync on the development of that.
0: I just love all of the integration of, you know, I think, for those of us who maybe are newer to spiritual journeys or practices, you know, I think a lot of times the assumption can be that, you know, we visualize, okay, the deep spiritual people are out, you know, uh, camping in the Himalayas and, uh, you know, they're not among us. And I, I love the integration of this practice into business life and into, you know, healthcare and and really just kind of seeping into all areas of life while while still being, you know, mainstream and and hugging trees occasionally and also doing the work, but it always being an ever-present Uh, journey. So, so I really do love that piece and part of both of your lives. And I appreciate you sharing that. Let's kind of go back to the point, you know, I I imagine him and you, you know, just um, continuing to tap into the peace that is within your practices of meditation and spirituality, you know, in the hospital, not being able to name or identify what's going on, but maybe knowing that something's not quite right. Um, so, kind of take us through, you know, some of the moments where maybe you noticed. Um, something didn't seem to be quite right, but I don't know how to identify this or name it. I don't know you know how to escalate this up the hierarchy of the hospital system. What did that sort of look like or feel like in in those times when something just didn't
1: seem quite right? Mm. Oh, I, that question is really important i will I will call out a couple of moments where I knew something was wrong and I didn't know how to. Help. Um, the first one that comes to my mind, and this is one of those uh, rare moments where someone was not was not being kind. Um, we were getting discharged, and I remember sitting down with one of the neurosurgeons, who was uh, very very um, busy and very just didn't didn't have a lot of time but I had a lot of questions and by that time it was about seven days six or seven days post-surgery and by that time the neurosurgery team had learned that we were going to be people who had lots of questions so they would send in people ahead of the the big wig who you know the the main doctor and get all our questions answered and answers the one answer the ones they could and then when the doctor came in he would be prepared to answer and respond to the ones that they couldn't. So it was a great system. They'd figured it out. But at this moment, this discharge moment, I was asking questions about the medications because my husband had had several episodes of left side numbness, chest spells, anxiety, um, uh, low pulse ox. And there were just a number of things that weren't going well. And we were getting ready to get discharged from the hospital and sent next door to the rehabilitation center where he was supposed to be in at minimum five to seven hours a day of therapy. And I remember ending that meeting feeling um, scolded and being basically told that my questions didn't make any sense and I I had stupid, you know, basically I had stupid questions. That's what I heard. That is not what she said to be clear, but that is what I felt in that moment. And I remember calling a friend who was a doctor and just saying, what do I do here? They want to discharge him. It doesn't feel right. Um, And he kind of had to talk me down from the ledge and, and help me understand that, you know, uh, that they were going to be doing their best and that I could just keep an eye on him and report absolutely everything that occurred. And that's what we had been doing. That's what we continue to do. And, In that hospital, you know, what I do want to say is, and I think this really gets missed a lot of time, is that people are trying to find out what's going on, but without the accurate information. In this case, this hospital didn't prioritize safe care, number one, and they did not. Generally speaking, and they didn't have any education around the third leading cause of the hospital-associated deaths, venous thromboembolism, and so they could not see the the obvious signs of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, which my husband was definitely experiencing. Um, so that I, I hope that gets to your question. I'm going to pause and just make sure I'm you know kind of staying on point with what you were hoping to to get out of that question.
0: Yes. No, I think that that's perfect. It's starting to, you know, sort of paint the picture of what symptoms you're noticing. And again, you know, not being able to put an identifier on this, you know, it's interesting because for those of us in the medical field and in the healthcare professions, we often, uh, we are on sort of on the other side of the spectrum where every minor symptom, we'd start naming it as all of these conditions that we know can be common. And, you know, I'm I'm putting myself in the position of, you know, you and your husband being attentive and. Uh, you know, appreciating the fact that there are these symptoms, trying to voice it, but in a, not in a way that you're able to to speak in, you know, the the jargon that's being spoken around you. And I, I do love the fact that you were known to the team as the, the couple who's going to ask the questions, because I think that's an important point for the listeners to hear is that that may not always be what the, the medical side wants, but it's absolutely necessary for you to get your questions answered. And in your case, they worked out a system that would allow those questions to get answered, even if that meant the, a team comes in first before the actual surgeon comes in. So I think that's those are all really important points. So, take us kind of through when did the physicians, the medical team, start to identify that maybe there really is a problem and we have not t- taken this as seriously as we need to?
1: Well, I'll course correct that just to slightly to say that when we reported things, they addressed it. Um, I he had met multiple uh, CT scans, but they kept looking in the wrong place, um, or the they kept looking for the wrong things. They kept thinking that it was going back to the origin of why he was there. So what they weren't doing is they weren't looking at hospital-associated conditions that very often happen from. Just surgery and hospitalization. So that's where the, the diagnosis was missed. And the diagnosis actually didn't occur until his autopsy. So I actually didn't have any confirmation that it was a pulmonary embolism or venous thromboembolism until August. So this was in June. He died in June and I got confirmation in August. Even in his medical records, it's not um, affirmative that, the, that they were, and there's nowhere that, that um, indicates that they were looking for DVT or pulmonary embolism. Um, uh, So, you know, I think one of the things that stands out for me just in terms of of the plan for care when you're in a hospital like that and speaking up is that even when you're speaking up, the hospital need or the clinic, could be just a doctor's office in the clinic or it could be a long-term healthcare facility, There needs to be what I would call reciprocity of communication going in both directions in addition to the commitment to getting to resolve. But even those two things are not going to be sufficient if the environment has not prioritized a line of sight for safe care and And that isn't just safe care for patients, that's safe care for the clinicians. That is really looking for the things that we know can go wrong and not being quiet about it. And if I could, I'll just take liberties to sort of um, navigate that toward my husband. He led his life learning how to be truthful. It was not easy for him uh, what he would say is, if, if for those who are listening who know uh, about the yama and the niyama, there's this first one that's called ahimsa, which is nonviolence. He, what he said is that he spent 35 years working on non nonviolence in order to be able to get to the second which which was being in truth, being present with what is. And when what we have today and what we see in healthcare is. Uh, Layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of um, uh, not being in truth, not being transparent, covering up things, not having time to actually address the real issues. I mean, there are dozens of versions of what keeps in these environments f- um, from being able to address the common causes of of medical. Um, or unsafe medical care and i if i were to choose one thing that i think could pierce it all it would be to lift the veil and to be able to really learn how to be more honest with ourselves in these situations so for i'll just give you a conclusion to his experience with that hospital was that the minute my husband left his body in the ICU after a massive pulmonary embolism. He'd been having several mini pulmonary embolisms for days, but this massive one um, ultimately is how he left his body. He stopped being a patient they were caring for, and he started being a risk that they were managing. And it was palpable. You could feel it, the tone, the communications um, changed instantly. And for several years after, I tried to get into a conversation with that hospital, with the administration, sincerely wanting to help them learn from this experience so that other families and patients would not, and clinicians, honestly, wouldn't have to keep experiencing this. And to this day, they're not able to have that conversation. So so long as we're not able to have conversations about the errors and harm and deaths that do occur, we will see a perpetuation of the same scenarios over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's such a
0: powerful message. And it's there's so much truth in the fact that the highly litigated society that we live in really puts a barrier up to effective and productive communication in a medical field where people, you know, are joining it as healthcare professionals because they want to help. And, and these barriers pop up because of the system that's broken because of the society that we're in. And it really, truly is unfortunate. Um, I, you know, i I would love to dive into as we wrap up the work that you're that has sort of come from that experience, the work that you are now involved in today, and in the in the medical system. Because I know that you you certainly um, wear a couple different hats, but your and your work in you're the patient safety movement, and then a secondary sort of part B to that is how the spiritual component of The insights you gained from your husband have helped you through this process, the grieving process, and the finding your sort of purpose in this line of work?
1: That's a very thoughtful question. Thank you. Um, I'll start by just saying that what we're doing right now is finding ways to bring what our expertise and what my husband spent 40 years of bringing to fruition through our organization, 10th Dot forward into both the healthcare sphere, but also into the patient and family sphere. Um, I sit on a number of committees. I do a tremendous amount of volunteer work. Additionally, our, our organization has helped found, along with a number of other members, an organization called Achala, After Caregiving Harm, A Loving Approach. And we help bring people together in conversations to help them sort through the pain and suffering that may result after either experiencing harm as a caregiver or a care receiver or a care supporter. Um, I also am very, very keen on bringing this work into the research arenas. So I sit on a couple of, of uh, research. Uh, groups or with research groups. And that's an angle and a direction that I intend to accentuate. I'm hoping that some of our work, like, for example, reflexive integration, um, can start to get some funding to see what is the efficacy. If there's one thing I've learned, it is that uh, that research today is faulty. And that's not just true for uh, areas around well-being and spirituality and meditation and things like that. Even in the rigorous sciences, we have um, started to slip away from excellent quality research. And it's my mission to bring high quality research and integrated research with medicine and um, practices that I do know and that we are starting to be able to finally visually see in the brain when we slow down, when we get one pointed in our focus, when we Focus and t- pay attention to our breath when we have a practice that really enlivens us, whether that is running or sitting or dancing or playing um, all the various forms. A few years ago, I worked with a hospital that um, that wanted their nurses to find ways in which to better self-care. And so the first place that we started was to just spend about six months asking them. And the range was vivid. And so it's not something that we can forget. And I'll close with your last question, I think maybe similarly to the way that we began of, you know, what does wellness look like? It's a very individual question and how I got through this or how I continue to thrive in the presence and absence of um, my beloved sidekick. And we, we spent virtually every waking and sleeping hour together so it was a it is a big miss and I will not lie and say that it's easy but what I do know is that I've made best friends with myself in uh, one of our workshops that we used to put on my husband found this picture and it's this little boy curled up sleeping against a wall and the caption says something like if you can make best friends with yourself you will never suffer and um i i'm not exactly sure that i can live into that statement it's 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 an aspirational statement for me but i do know that knowing myself and being in environments that advocate for me being able to thrive um, has meant the world to me over these last eight years since he left his body and I do my best every day to provide that environment for others so that they can really um, see themselves clearly and be in an environment that helps them accentuate what it is that makes them thrive
0: Such beautiful insights, memories, um, sort of insights from your husband. It reminds me of a quote I recently heard, which is that grief is the presence of absence. And I think it's just such a a concise way to put really what it is. Um, and And I do love making friends with ourselves and making that a priority. Let's wrap up with maybe some tangible pieces of advice to somebody who might be in a similar position that you found yourself in um, in a position where maybe they feel like something's not quite right but they don't know what next steps to take maybe they also are not well versed in the medical system they don't necessarily know how to sort of you know um, speak out the words and the lingo that the team would understand um, and maybe that's a little bit intimidating so what are some of your pieces of advice for somebody in a similar situation
1: Well, I would start by saying that um, the first moments do set the tone. And so prepare before you get there, prepare before your clinic appointment, prepare before uh, either an emergency or planned hospitalization and prepare with a partner, find somebody that you trust to be able to hear you and listen to you and identify and meet you where you are follow um, you know follow your line of thinking about what you want a a good advocate is one who is actually going to be on your side not their side so i'll give you a good example of sometimes i'll see a parent for my parents for example making decisions that are different than the decisions i would make my role as an advocate is to share with them my perspective but honor theirs and so both be a good advocate but also get a partner who can be a good advocate with you and then I would also say just practically speaking is to um, reach out to people who really um, you can tell often especially in a hospital environment there's often that that person who just stands out as really wanting what you want and being um, attentive to that identify that person and make friends with them and help them amplify their advocacy for you within their healthcare ecosphere i've done that a number of times when I've been supporting a friend um, in need in a hospital, and it really does go a long way. If you look, you will find somebody who is still in that place of origin for entering their profession. They're there because they care. They're there because they want to do the right thing. They want to help. And when you can really make and uh, amplify good relationships with those individuals, you'll have a, a better stance within the whole environment. Mm,
0: such important advice. I often have these conversations with my own advocacy clients, and I we you know I start to identify, you know, who has been has there anybody who has stood out as extra helpful, extra kind, and uh, and I think that that is such an important point to make for those who are looking for where they can start to advocate for their loved ones. Um, because yes, I I do really believe in the goodness of humanity in general, but also very much in the medical system. And as much as it often looks like it maybe they don't care they went it's it's rare to find somebody who went into medicine for all of the wrong reasons it's just the system is not supportive of their vision mission values and so that that can get lost but yes you will find those who are still Passionate and compassionate and uh, identifying those people is so important. Thank you so much, Fonda, for sharing your insights, your story. Um, I, I loved learning more about your husband. Where can people, and I will include this in the show notes, but where could people find more about the work that you do um, and any, any other sort of resources that you would like to share?
1: I'll give you three, um, and I'll send you the links. But uh, our organization is 10th.com. That's the organization that my husband founded and that I continue to um, operate and run today. And that's one zero t 0 And then there are two patient safety advocate um, organizations that I would recommend. There are several, but both of these will lead you to the others. The Minnesota Alliance for Patient Safety was the first organization that started to really help me out. And then the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. Um, both of these are .org, so maps.org and patient safety movement foundation.org will be a wealth of information both for patients and clinicians. Both of those organizations are extraordinarily gifted at bringing the the patients, the family members, and loved ones into the same conversations and engaged activities with clinicians, administrators, scientists, researchers, medical device companies, you name it. So um, I think anybody that can really bridge those is going to be on the right track to help make a difference for healthcare in general.
0: Thank you so much for those resources, Vonda. And thank you so much for your time today, sharing your insights, your story, your journey. And of course, thank you so much for the work that you continue to do in the space of patient safety. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. A huge thank you to Vonda for sharing her insights today, her journey, her life, her husband's life, and their learnings along the way to what ultimately was an unfortunate and very preventable situation that many others find themselves in and i know that these insights will be so valuable to so many thank you all for continuing to stick with me as we find more ways to be mindful of our wellness again my only ask of you is to rate me in an honest way on itunes It helps others find me and it helps others learn from these amazing guests, which ultimately is my my goal and purpose is to make sure that others learn from the paths and journeys of others. I look forward to seeing you here again next time.